You're listening to Library Talks from the New York Public Library. Today on the show is Anand Giridardas. Anand is a journalist, MSNBC contributor, and the author of a new book that's called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand came here to talk about the book with Joanne Reed, who's the host of MSNBC's AM Joy. The book is an argument about what's gone wrong with philanthropy today in our new Gilded Age. Anand argues that super rich people are trying to fix all kinds of the world's problems, climate change, human rights, inequality. But the issue is that the problems they're trying to fix are sometimes problems they've created and other times problems that they've benefited from on their rise to the top of the 0.001%. The book is actually a really funny read. It gets into some really heavy territory, but it's lively and engaging. And so is this conversation that Anand had with Joanne Reed. What a beautiful audience. You're all so attractive. Thank you for being here. You look great. Compliment the audience to start off. Always. 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 Well, thank you all for being here. Uh, It is really fun to be here to actually get to have an extended conversation with Anand, whose book, I should say, is on the indie bestsellers list as of now. You can give that a round of applause. Normally, when we get to talk, we get to talk for a total of six minutes with four other people also talking. With people yelling in our ear. Yelling in our ear. Rap! Hopefully no one will do that today. So let's just jump right in. Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, a subtle title. Um, I'm going to start by asking you, Anand, what is wrong with rich people giving away their money? On the surface, nothing. On the surface, what is not to like um, with rich and powerful people spending some of their uh, hard-earned or not hard-earned money um, making the world a better place? I became curious about the juxtaposition of two facts about our age that we'll all recognize. We live in an incredibly generous time by any measure. More money being given away now than ever in history, the giving pledge, you know, but it's not just money, it's also like every elite college graduate wants to change the world. I mean, you have kids in that age group. Like, who doesn't want to change the world in that demographic? You know, someone said to me in the book, like, at any dinner party, someone's got one kid in Africa on an internship, and someone else's kid is starting a social enterprise. Um, so we clearly live in a time in which elites want to help, and yet this is the most unequal time in America in 100 years. Um, it is a time of democratic decay and dysfunction, as you chronicle so well on the weekends. Um, And it is a time in which most Americans have come to feel, I think correctly, that this society is rigged in favor of the few, doesn't work for people anymore, most people anymore. And the American dream that this whole enterprise is supposed to run on is is a lie and a nightmare. Um, And so the problem with rich people giving back, I found, is that it's not just not enough to solve those problems. I actually came to be persuaded that it was how those problems were being upheld. That giving had actually become the wingman of continued taking, an extreme taking. And generosity had actually become the wingman of injustice. And and changing the world, and this talk of changing the world, had become the wingman of keeping the world the same so that your world doesn't have to change. Interesting. You just reminded me that I forgot to do my shout-outs. I want to shout-out to Goldman Sachs. Um, Uber, Facebook, uh, who made this book possible. This book could not have been written without you. Not possible. Um, Not possible without 
uh, their generous contributions yeah. to decay yeah. as well as trying to fix it. Um, I want to read in, a little bit. In-kind contributions. In-kind yeah. contributions, that's right. So Just contrib- by doing what they do. Contributing their genius. Just by being them. Just by being them. They're they, wonderful They selves. made this book possible. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. I want to read a little bit from the prologue of the book. This is on page nine. Hopefully all of you were on book buying moods this evening. Afterwards, you're going to get an opportunity to the do The Trump that. economy is great. The Trump economy, there we go. It's like the gig economy only with Trump. Yeah. All right, so... Um, <laughs> Here's a little bit from the book, and you talk about the myriad ways in which elites seek to change the world, but change things on the surface, so that in practice nothing changes at all. And you write, the people with the most to lose from genuine social change have placed themselves in charge of social change, often with the passive assent of those most in need of it. Explain. If you think about someone like Mark Zuckerberg, okay, going around telling people he's changing the world, he's liberating mankind. On the surface, obviously, this is preposterous, okay? But I want to suggest that it wouldn't be possible for him to pull it off and reap whatever dividends he does from it if enough of us didn't sort of buy into it. Okay? It doesn't have to be a lot of us, but there's kind of circles of enablement of this kind of idea. If enough of us didn't actually think Elon Musk is a world changer, if enough of us didn't think that those hedge fund guys who go to Robin Hood once a year and have a gala to help people in New York, if we didn't think they were saving New York, if we didn't sort of culturally buy into it, if the newspapers didn't, you know, when Steve Case's wife wants to start an impact fund and they write this totally flattering article without kind of looking at the distribution of income in our society, all of that passive cultural enablement is what I find allows this kind of ex- culture of extreme taking followed by some amount of giving to occur. And so I didn't just, I mean, I, I, I wrote this book partly, you know, but secondarily to convince rich people to come correct and to stop living in a way where they are causing massive harm or in or sustaining that harm and then you know throwing us some scraps to fix it but i mostly wrote it for everybody else to stop believing these stories because these stories these myths are actually what allows this age of inequality to 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 go on and i i'm going to say you know when i was reading that thomas piketty book that many of you bought and didn't read um, <laughs> i you know as a service to you decided to read it um, but only when I started writing this book. And, and I, you know, early on in the book, he has this line. And I was, you know, I was in the early phases of writing this and kind of aimless and purposeless while, while trying to figure out what this book was. And there's this line he has. He says, whether or not this kind of extreme inequality that we have now is possible depends on the strength of the apparatus of justification. And I saw that phrase, the apparatus of justification. And I thought, that's what my book's about. My book is not about the absolute levels of inequality and he, you know, his R is going faster than G. I can't do that kind of stuff. Um, my book is about the culture that allows that to be possible. Interesting. I'm gonna, first of all, I want to say thank you because now when I go to dinner parties, I won't call him Pickety. I thought it was Pickety. <laughs> And I'm really embarrassed now that I didn't know it was Pickety. I think Pickety. we all did because it sounds like picket line. Right, I thought it was Pickety. Well, yeah. you know what? I'm going to be so much more 
yeah. much more acceptable yeah. at swanky dinner parties now. Um, I want to <laughs> get into that a little bit because part of the whole myth of America is the Horatio Alger story. The idea that you can become a wealthy and then go from poverty to philanthropy in one lifetime. And we sort of look at the Carnegies. You write about Carnegie in your book. Um, the idea that the Rockefellers and the Roosevelts and the wealthy among us actually have the potential because they have the money, um, but also in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of instances, they have the desire and the soul of return, of trying to give back. And you are kind of challenging that as a truly altruistic thing. Why? I mean, you know, since we're just in an intimate group here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question with a, the story about my own life a little bit, which is that I grew up with that story, um, not because we were wealthy philanthropists, but because we were an Indian immigrant family. And a lot of immigrant families actually have some version of that story because the feeling can be, you know, we're these castaways who came here with nothing and we worked hard and we, and so I, that was very much a part of my family culture growing up. And it's a story that always cuts off realities about where you, you know, the status you may have had in the old country, which may have actually helped you get a leg up here, the fact that you may have been entering into a, my, my father came to go to school here, so that was entering into a privileged place, the fact that we happened to be among those rare Indians who spoke English when they, when they left. And, I mean, all of that gets cut out. And it becomes, and I think immigration is actually part of the way we shore up that Horatio Alger story. We import people who are predisposed to think in some ways that they, they fought and made it themselves. Um, and it was actually, ironically in my life, going to India and being a foreign correspondent for the New York Times in India, that I actually realized that what was true in India was true everywhere, which is that most people don't make their fate. Right. Most people in India, but actually most people here, aren't where they are because of how hard they worked. Some people are, mm -hmm. but those are the exceptions. And I think with this book, I became very interested in how these people use the story of their own tremendous intelligence and fortitude to make the money to justify a power grab into now rectifying problems that they helped to cause. In other words, the brilliance of the arsonist now entitles him to become a firefighter because he's so good. When he was at Goldman Sachs, he was so good at that arson <laughs> that yes, although he was in the fire spreading business at that time, right. <laughs> what matters is his aptitude at it, which was off the charts. Yeah. And now when you need an arsonist at some foundation that's fighting inequality, uh, sorry, when you need a firefighter at some foundation that's fighting poverty, or the mayor needs someone to be you know, the chief advisor on equalizing the economy or something like that, Charter school needs a board member. The arsonist is in pole position yeah. because he rose from nothing out of that Horatio Alger story. That equips him with this special power to now be the solution to the problem that is him. All right, I'm going to put a pin in that because I do want to, I want to talk a little bit more about that sort of that kind of mix of altruism and also self-protection, right? Protecting sort of the means of gaining uh, wealth. But what you just said sounds like you're president. It sounds a little bit like the argument that Donald Trump made was, listen, I know all about you know the way that politicians Correct. steal because they used to steal from me. Correct. I know all about this corruption. Is so important. They were corrupt with me. Yes. So I'm I alone can fix it because I know the I know for corruption. We talk I'm, about this. You know, and you know he didn't <sighs> rise from nothing. He rose from the nothing of a 14 million dollar inheritance, but. 
you know, to his, a lot of his supporters. He, you even write here, and I'm gonna read another little piece in your book. You say that Trump, that people have an intuition um, that, il that this cult of elite-backed social change is BS. And that Trump exploited that intuition, you write, by whipping it into frenzied anger and then directing most of that anger not at elites but at the most marginalized and vulnerable Americans. You know, so there are two things there. First of all, I think tr what Trump did, the most positive thing I can say about him, is that he correctly understood a correct intuition that many Americans had that was underserved by other politicians that the system was rigged and that elites in government and business were sort of in cahoots with each other and didn't care about you know, regular people as much as they proclaimed. Um, he's not the first, I think Bernie Sanders also tapped into that feeling. I think Howard Dean tapped, I mean, Ross Perot tapped into that feeling. But he did a good job of reading the presence of that feeling and catering to it and making choices to serve it. The tragedy of Donald Trump is that he then deflected it. And instead of reflect, harnessing that anger and going after some of the people who have hurt the working and middle classes in America, he like suddenly made it about, you know, blacks and Muslims and immigrants and, and, and women and like things that, you know, just nothing to do with that cause. The second important thing that you raised is this point about language. I think this is so important and so, uh, painful for many of us. The reality is a lot of Trump's language, and I, I use this word in heavy quotations, but kind of intellectual moves. Um, he went to the best schools, Anna. He did, he did, he did. Um, a lot of his intellectual moves are actually the moves over the last 20, 30, 40 years of the philanthrocapitalists most of whom, in my experience, vote for Democrats. So let's just talk about some of those moves. I made stuff in China and Mexico. Yeah, I totally made stuff in China and Mexico. That's why I uniquely can go to China and Mexico and get better deals. I'm the, that's the arsonist rebranded as firefighter. That is the same as what every philanthrocapitalist tells us. Because I work in business, because I work in hedge funds, I can actually go fight for working people and figure out what they need better than others. I can figure out public education better than others. When Trump secondly says, you know, or, or does, uh, you know, I can enrich myself while fighting for the meekest among us, right? His whole, the whole thing is premised on that. You know, that is the win-win, which is at the heart of this book. That is the phoniness of the win-win. The idea that, that many wealthy people have spread in this country, that they can have their cake and eat it too, that, that doing what is right for others requires no sacrifice. Again, he didn't invent that idea. That idea was, that track was laid for him by perfectly lovely things like Tom's shoes and these others that just spread this idea, you know, a tote bag that changes the world or a bank that can just totally rape and pillage but also yeah. have an impact fund on the side. Like, a lot of us participated in giving this guy a set of templates. And I think you don't get Donald Trump without like 18 parallel system failures that were uncorrelated from each other. A lot of machines have to break at the same time. And they can't all be the fault of the Republican Party and Paul Ryan and the Koch brothers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it starts to become an uncomfortable and painful conversation that I think a lot of us, 
a lot of us either bought into ideas or participated in a culture that allowed our biggest problems to be unsolved, that rich-splained to poor and middle-class and working-class people that things were great when they weren't, and that allowed this phenomenon to like, kind of wreck our civilization. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that. A couple things there uh, to unpack that you write about Facebook. You write a lot about Facebook companies like Amazon, Facebook, Another Google. sponsor of tonight. And, yeah, thank in, you very in much. In kind. Appreciate yeah. your, your contributions yeah. to the, the planet. Um, but there is this sense that, like, Mark Zuckerberg, because he came up and created this high-tech thing, can fix education because he knows something special that maybe we don't know. And so that if they can just appify and gamify and give every, you know, impoverished person, you know, an app or a little sort of device, something technological, and put that technology in their hands, a lot of people do believe that, that that kind of, um, as you say, techno-splaining to poor people, that you can actually make everybody have possibility. You think that's a flawed way of looking at things. You know, there, I think it was John James Mill, John Stuart Mill's dad, who wrote this history of India, and he, he famously wrote that he, he was uniquely qualified to write this history of India because he was not biased by having gone there. Um, <laughs> And it's interesting that, um, that Mark Zuckerberg, when he spent $100 million to transform the schools of Newark, he had not gone there when he embarked on that. Right. He, you know, he went there for the first time to do that. Now, I understand that, that colonialism and that are different situations, but they're a lot less different than you may think. Um, I think what's interesting is with tech specifically, which is a bit of a subset of this larger issue. You know, I think none of us are fooled by like a banker or a chemical company or, you know, just like normal businesses that just make normal things. None of us are fooled into thinking that they are liberators of man. We give them too much political power, et cetera. But with this tech thing, there is this sense that I think is rooted in a kernel of truth that their tools are inherently empowering which has a kernel, I mean, it's more than a kernel of truth. If you are a really great singer living in Algeria, your chance of being discovered in the age of YouTube right. shot through the roof. You were not gonna get a New York agent uh, you know, before the age of YouTube. So, okay, like that's powerful. And I, th I think what happened is a lot of them bought onto that story of the inherently empowering, leveling power of what they had, and as that power has grown, as they have built monopoly after monopoly, as they have become basically the most powerful people in history, controlling our commerce, I mean, they've got $2 trillion companies right now, controlling commerce, controlling discourse, you know, by small mistakes, allowing elections to be maybe totally compromised, you know, uh, gutting our news business. I mean, my friends who work in journalism will basically tell you, sitting across from Facebook is like meeting, you know, Tony Soprano. It's like, you don't publish on our platform, no ads, we collect the revenue, like, hope you got your newspaper next year, right? We've allowed them to get away with that because we bought this story that I, that I call in the book the kind of rebel king theory, that we've bought their own fantasy, that they are like rebels against the man, they're insurgents, instead of understanding that they are not just the Rockefellers and Carnegies of our age, they are so much more powerful than the Rockefellers and Carnegies were, because they are in our minds, they're in our elections, they, they, they have a, a power over our children, and they have us all massively addicted, and we need to actually get our act together as a society and use our power to rein in their power. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you even write that um, Facebook, despite calling itself a community, single-handedly redefined the word friend for much of humanity based on what was best for its own business model. And the, you know, the sense that Google, as you say, they, have, they know everything you search for, everything you buy, every off-color joke you've ever typed, every utterance you've ever spoken in your home in the presence of its kitchen helper, every move you've made in front of its home security camera, and you go on Airbnb, and all the, the, the control that they wield in your life, that you give them, right? That people are giving them this control by not setting their security settings to prevent it means they're wheedled in. So what's the, what is the risk? Because you do write about the fact that one thing they've done is to step in and prevent themselves being regulated, that they prevent government from controlling them. So that's one thing they get out of it. Is that the only purpose of this, that they want to control giving so that no one can rein them in? You know, I, I, one of the things that I found in the book in spending, because, you know, I, we're having a conversation about the ideas here, but I, you know, I want people to know, like, this is a reported book where I went into this world for, for a couple of years and, and spent time um, in, with people to understand how these people are trying to change the world and what, and, and what I always do as a journalist to try to understand it as best I can from their point of view. And I encountered what I would say is a very wide spectrum from the naive to the shrewd. There are definitely people, and I think like New York finance supplies play more examples of this, where it's, we know, where greed is definitely the primary motivation and the primary story. And the giving or the world changing or whatever is just part of the lubricant of the machinery of taking, right? And there's like an email I love from Goldman Sachs, you know, in the November of 2007, like big New York Times story coming out saying, how did we escape the mortgage crisis while we were selling all these toxic things to our clients? They would end up going to pay a $5 billion fine for like what was described in that email. And they said, you know, we've got to make sure this reporter writes about GS gives in this same story. But unfortunately, she didn't, she didn't bite because she's like a good reporter. Um, but like that email just shows like they fully understand the linkage between the giving and like the bad story about how you escape the mortgage crisis while selling toxic products to your clients. Um, but I think in Silicon Valley, it's a very different story. I actually think that's the naive end of the spectrum. And I actually think the naive uh, folks who, like Zuckerberg, like Elon Musk, who I, th I think, as best I can tell, really think they are doing what is best for humankind, are actually a much bigger challenge for us. I actually think we know reasonably well what to do with like greedy people. We actually have a pretty, you know, the SEC like detects suspicious trades, but like it's not perfect, and we have a financial crisis every now and then. But like we have a pretty elaborate infrastructure to protect against those kinds of greed. Idealistic monopolists who are deeply convinced that if you and me as journalists leave them alone, and if the government leaves them alone, they will simply be able to liberate Afghan girls and Algerian singers and you know, Japanese politicians faster and better than any empowerment engine in the history of mankind. Those are people with what I would describe with you know, understandable irony is like a Mao Gandhi like self-conception. And as those two examples show, like that can go either way. <laughs> and I think we are right now in the position of society of just like hoping it bends towards Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> that is not a good posture. Right. Um, and just a simple thing, you know, I'm sometimes accused of like not being practical in this book because um, somehow people are under the mistaken impression that calling for the dethroning of an entire ru ruling class is not a simple practical solution. Um, <laughs> 
but a very practical idea that like the pract some practical people in this room more practical than me should be talking about more and investigating is like what we do about monopoly. That is a very simple like thing that we should be talking about that was a huge part of what happened 100 years ago in a similar moment. Um, we need to be dealing with the issue of monopoly. Right now, these companies pose antitrust issues that are not really covered by the law. They're, it's not straightforward abuse of market power because we all buy into it and there's network effects, so it's actually valuable to us to only have one Facebook and it's valuable to us to only have one Airbnb. And like, these are new problems that you know, thousands of people need to be thinking about and researching and writing books about because we just can't live in a world full of these idealistic robber barons who, are, who think they're liberating man while basically owning the society among five of them. Yeah, and it's interesting because you, this book really does feel like you're writing about modern day robber barons, but in that era you did have a backlash of regulation to try to break them up and rein them in, and bust the trust, et cetera. Um, this morning I, as I was watching the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, Ben Sass gets up and he gives a soliloquy that was actually quite smart. He tried to do schoolhouse rock, right? He said, We're, I'm gonna explain to you how government is supposed to work. And what he, the argument he made is that we, as ordinary people, we can elect our representatives to Congress. They are then supposed to create the rules of the road. But what's happening is rather than Congress stepping up to their responsibility, their Article I power, they're essentially handing over their power to a sea of bureaucrats who work for the second branch of government, who are not elected by the people, who can make a regulation that affects this business or Facebook or Google or some business in Idaho where that person in Idaho or Facebook cannot change it because they didn't vote for that person. They can't vote them out. And so the argument, the counter argument to yours is that the more you regulate these businesses, the less democratic small d it is. What do you think of that? I think that's interesting. I mean, I, like, I'd be curious who wrote that statement for him. <laughs> staffer. It's always a staffer. Staffer was at yeah. Facebook two months ago and we'll be Probably. back there in a couple months. Um, you know, I, th I think that that's plausible, but I, but, I, but I do not think we are at a moment of... I think there's some things we actually do over-regulate, probably. Um, I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are uh, very liberal and who have, like, small startups. Mm -hmm. um, and what they will tell you is, like, painfully that it, like, the right has a certain point mm -hmm. about it being really hard to start a small business. Mm -hmm. And I actually think something we should probably do in America is make it easier to start a small business and harder to run a huge business. Because right now it's a lot easier to like, be Pepsi than it is to start a restaurant. And like, we should probably switch that up. Um, but, I, but, but, but I think when I, when I think about that, those branches of government, I think the real thing that actually disturbs me is that the, giving, the givers have actually become an unelected fourth branch of government, you know? And, and, and it's a branch of government that has some of the powers of the others. I mean, in many ways, they make, they just make laws. Um, they decide what a certain district school should be like. But they also kind of have the power of judicial review that the courts are supposed to have. And they, they just overrule the public interest on a bunch of issues. I mean, philanthropy in the US last year was $410 billion, okay? The New Yorker just made this point in a review of the book, this kind of thing where I was like, I wish I had put that in my book. Um, <laughs> they said um, that philanthropy is on track to exceed federal discretionary non-defense spending. Okay, now just think about that for a second. At some, basically, this is private government, 
that we're trending towards. This is not like a little bit of the ba local ballet in Akron, right? We are creating a parallel private route. And, and all of us in this room are actually working longer hours every year to pay higher taxes, to pay for rich people to have a tax deduction when they give that money away, right? Um, and it is approaching a level where it's gonna exceed federal spending on education and the arts and various other things. And the question of what is that money doing, not at the level of each program, but, but how is it preventing what I think is the only real reckoning that needs to happen, which is the redistribution of power in American life. Not helping some people, not some scraps, not a charter school that you can boast to people about in Connecticut. Um, an actual change in who has power in this society. Right. And, and I mean, the, the sort of most direct way that the citizen exercises power, obviously, is over electing the government. And you do write in the book about sort of the decay of government, which you make the point, and it is, I think, a valid point, if you look at the most seminal changes in the actual lives of, of human beings who've lived in this country over the last hundred years, they've come from government. They've come from the New Deal. They've come from the Great Society. They've come from the civil rights bills that were passed through government. So in what way does this fourth branch of government, this huge charitable, you know, giving multi-billion dollar, uh, multi-billionaire fourth branch of government, how does that make government worse? So one of the, the most common pushbacks to, to this conversation we're having, we'll start there, is like, well, government is so bad right now uh, that we, gotta, we have to work around it, right? We're just waiting, we're waiting. It, 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 you know, it's like, you know, when they have those like Iraqi governments in exile in Paris and they just hang out in Paris for like 40, 50 years, yeah. just like drinking things, and then like when there's an opportunity to, you know, go back home to Iraq and run Iraq, like, they're there waiting. Shout out to George W. Bush, who everybody exactly. likes again and exactly. forgets that he did that. Yeah, he's great, great <laughs> American president now, retrospectively. Yeah. Um, he passed a mint to Michelle. Let's yeah. keep, you know, let's yeah. be fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, people are just so hungry for someone to pass something. Um, so, so, so people will say, you know, we're in this time of dysfunctional government. People can't, the government can't do anything. So I'm here. I got this money, why don't I do this social venture fund? Why don't I do this little program in Africa? Why don't I do, you know, whatever, whatever it is that, that they do. And that's a, that's a tough one. I think it's true, particularly in the Trump era, like clearly the government's not gonna be solving a lot of problems. And, I, and, I, and I'm not against them doing that. What I'm interested in understanding is, what is the total effect of doing that? And my argument is, if government's atrophying, and then we use that as an excuse to work around it and solve more problems this way, government further atrophies. And then we solve more problems this way. And over time, you get to the reality we have now, which is $410 billion, and starting to approach, close in on the, that federal funding level. Um, so I do believe that this private giving, this kind of privatization of social change, in some ways is a symptom of dysfunctional democracy. But it's a symptom that circles back around and becomes a cause. And more importantly, it becomes a justification for not fixing government. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the, when the right used to just say government is evil and government's terrible, I mean, that worked on its people and it had a certain number of people that, that would reach. Um, 
but it was always limited. What I believe this is, is trickle-down change instead of trickle-down economics. This is trickle-down social change, right? Let, let's preserve a society in which the government does little, in which the winners therefore win a lot because they're not being policed, in which social problems multiply because the government's not really protecting people and the winners are doing whatever they want, and then with all this largesse, let's, let's us solve the problems. And what no one factors into that equation is what I call the winner's veto. When winners solve social problems, they're only gonna solve them in ways that don't take anything from winners. Yeah, right. Have you ever heard a TED talk about cracking down on tax havens? <laughs> I'm serious, I mean, is there, maybe there is. No one here has viewed it. Um, you know, is there going to be a, I mean, Goldman Sachs got the green bonds, they got the prison recidivism, thing, as long as they don't recidivize the Connecticut. Um, they got the Impact Investment Fund. Like, is Goldman Sachs interested in figuring out how to make taxation work so that, you know, investors don't pay less than their secretaries? No. And would you expect them to? So, when the winners take over change, they change change. They do fake change. And the, art, the, the passionate plea for this book through the stories of these people who are wrestling with what change is and how they can best make it, um, is how do we figure out how to go back to making real change in this country? I mean, ask yourself, to go back to what you said a second ago, ask yourself, just look at what you did today, whatever you did today, and no one here is your judge, whether you worked or you know, whatever you did. A lot of what we did in this room today would not have been legal for us 100 years ago, either because you wouldn't be in this country or you wouldn't be working because you're a woman, or you wouldn't be working because you're a person of color, or you wouldn't have had the political power to you know, have a, whatever it is. None of that, that just allowed you to do what you did today, the basic infrastructure of our, none of it came from powerful people throwing you scraps. It came from changing laws and systems and building movements to change the rules for everybody. And all of the most important things in the society have, have occurred there, which doesn't mean private endeavor is bad, but it means it's built on top mm -hmm. of a set of norms and institutions and laws which allow us to build those beautiful private castles. Um, one of the uh, fascinating stories you tell, because I'm a, I'm a history geek and I love to go back in time, you talk about Carnegie. And you talk about the way that the robber barons sort of devised this idea of self-protective philanthropy, knowing that inequality would be so bad that eventually it would create social unrest and the victims would be them. Like they'd be behind the barricades while the rabble are out there, right? And so their idea was not to make the rabble have more because we can't have that, not to, we're not gonna raise their wages, we're not gonna do any of that. We're just gonna create this sort of philanthropic shield around ourselves so that we look like we're not so bad. Do you think that um, today's robber barons essentially have just adopted that same philosophy? You know, one of the things when you, when you write words, um, one of the things you hope, but basically never happens, is that a set of words you write will become so influential that it will unconsciously become the framework people use, you know. And one of the only people that truly, not only, but you know, one of the very few people that truly pulled that off in American life was Andrew Carnegie with that wealth tract he wrote, which you, know, you may have studied in school as the gospel of wealth. I mean, it is hard to think about a single document that provided the framework that basically to this day, 130 something years later, people basically use as the way to think about 
giving and taking an elite responsibility to others in American life. And what he basically did was, in this time, as you say, of rising anger, and a time very much like this, where there were all these new things being invented, a new economy was in the works, um, you had immigrants coming in and you know, scaring people as they always do, those pesky immigrants. Um, and, and he wrote this tract that basically did the following. He said, it basically laid out, the way I think about it, a bargain. And the bargain you know, was basically, you leave us alone in the money-making phase. Thank you, Siri. That was, that was deep. Yeah. That was, that was... As are we all, Siri. Siri I mean, that As was like... As are we all. If you had any doubt whether Apple was, like, monitoring this. Um, yeah. That one trillion dollars can buy a lot of surveillance. Um, so he laid out a deal where he said, you know, you leave me alone in the money-making phase, and then I will, what I offer you in exchange is I will give lavishly in the in the like, time of you know, grandchildren and reading glasses. So what was interesting about him, though, is he lived up to both. So he was utterly ruthless, breaking unions, blah, blah, blah like, at, you know, deny, paying as little as he could pay. And he, and he said, I have to pay them as little as I can pay, because otherwise my business is not going to survive. But then he actually gave in an extreme way, in a way that, by the way, people only now copy like the first part of his thing, right? <laughs> like he actually believed that if you hold on to your wealth and don't distribute it, you are an immoral person. He believed it was wrong to die with any wealth. He actually believed that you are, the wealth is not yours. His paternalism was that he believed that you were the custodian of it and that paying it to people as wages was wasteful, which is you know, why he doesn't look so good in retrospect. But in his defense, he believed in being as extreme a giver and he built libraries, you know. But he has laid the foundation for everything when people think about this giving and taking. And this idea that basically kindness ex post facto justifies anything goes capitalism. Yep. And that's the link. And so one of the people I write about in the book and spend a lot of time in a limousine with is Darren Walker, the head of the Ford Foundation. And Darren's big project that I write about in the book is to try to write a new gospel of wealth because he understands that you can't, you need, a, you need an intellectual charter to actually replace that intellectual charter. Yeah, interesting. And if you don't know about Darren Walker, African-American head of the mighty Ford Foundation, which is pretty exciting. Um, so can I say one thing about that? Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that comes up again and again in the book is some of the most interesting people in these elite spaces are people who are in these spaces and therefore very powerful, but as a personal matter, right. are on, one, on the wrong end of one or two or three power equations mm -hmm. in their personal life. Right. And therefore have a, I mean, the women in my book were very different than the men in my book. And I felt, kept feeling I need to like find, but it was actually, there was a point there. Yeah. Like being on the wrong end of certain kinds of power equations, and I think they're gonna be the, the very important reformers around this system. Well, we're, we're very close to uh, question time, but I, I have to get in before we go to questions. I've, we've talked about Bill Clinton. Um, you talk about CGI, the Clinton Global Initiative, and you write about it in the book. It is, in a lot of ways, the perfect fusion of these two things. Right? This is somebody who came, obviously, from government. He was a governor. Um, he was president of the United States. He has this massive foundation that is, by any accounts, doing good around the world and giving money away. So 
is he part of the problem? If, the, if, as you say, this idea of sort of giving as a way to shield powerful people from consequences of the way they got their wealth, well, what, did, what then do we make of something like CGI, which is created by a former president? As he said to me repeatedly during my interview with him, yes, but. <laughs> then he would just wait. Um, I think what you meant was yes. Right, but exactly. That's more how you talk. Yeah, exactly. You got to do more Elvis. I don't do any. I don't do accents anymore. Uh, I was actually brought out as a child to do accents for all my parents' dinner parties, and I retired early. Okay. Yeah. I got your back. Yeah. If you need somebody yeah. to do the accents yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, we'll be here all night. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna tell a couple things about that Bill Clinton story because it's interesting. So Bill Clinton was at Georgetown. I start the book with a young woman at Georgetown recently who graduated, and, and this is the story of her senior year and how she decides what to do with her life. And basically she's in an atmosphere that's familiar from many elite colleges where all the options are about like, you need to go work in business if you wanna make a difference. Um, so then I end the book with another Georgetown person, Bill Clinton. And what's so striking to me is if you were to go back to 1964 when he was at Georgetown, who among us believed more than Bill Clinton did in using movements and politics and the law to improve society, right? He saw Lyndon Johnson, he was inspired by the Great Society, he, devoted, he didn't go to Goldman Sachs for a couple of years, like he went back to Arkansas, he could have done anything, right? He could have gone anywhere in the world, he could have joined any white shoe law, he went to Arkansas and he made his life in politics. And fast forward to when I spoke to him in 2017, or the CGI that I covered in 2016, who believes more than Bill Clinton today in this new kind of way of changing the world, which is basically rich donors deciding what pro programs they want to fund, and involving some agencies, involving maybe a union, involving an activist, but with their power to you know, fund this or not, a, a model of social change that is essentially Goldman Sachs and McDonald's work together on a program to you know, help Pepsi build smaller Coke cans, <laughs> whatever, you know, that kind of thing. All the partners are here. Um, and so I became curious about just how he made that evolution. Because I really think it's, it's hard for me to think about anybody in the world who traveled the arc that my book talks about more than Bill Clinton. Um, and so I went to the CGI and I spent two days there. And it was kind of this... Fascinating experience. I mean, they keep talking about they've transformed the lives of 435 million people around the world, according to Palantir, which did their analysis, which is another company listening to us tonight. Um, <laughs> and clearly, they have done good work. I mean, I lived in India. I mean, they did the whole AIDS thing. They did. They brought the price of AIDS drugs down by doing this like only Bill Clinton deal, where he got the company to take the price down if he could get the African companies to commit to a certain level of buy, and like, he did it. Like, they have definitely saved lives and helped millions of people. Um, but he said something that was very striking at the end of that CGI about this partnership, Goldman Sachs, McDonald's, Pepsi model of changing the world. He said, this is all that works in the modern world. This is, this is the only way to make change in the modern world. And it took the breath out of me. And this is a guy who ran the most powerful machinery of state in the history of human civilization. So, and a brief side thing, and I promise I'll wrap it up, is I wrote a, a version of this book a long time ago, well, I mean, a, you know, a couple years ago, submitted it and was told that it didn't work. And a friend of mine read it and said, you gotta find the love in this book. And that was, 
transformative thing. And I, 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 gutted, I got rid of half the book, started over, and went to actually go even more deeply engage with people to try to understand it from inside. And so instead of writing this snarky chapter about CGI, which was my original plan, I went to go, I like wrote this long email to his staff person saying, I think he's traveled this fascinating arc. Can I talk to him? Expecting them to say no. And they said like, sure. So I had this 90 minutes with him. And it was the most, both amazing, it was six months after the election. It was the most amazing and sad conversation. Um, Look, there's no one smarter on these questions. And he, and he understood, and he got it. And he, and, he, and he actually talked about how he actually has anxieties that some of these Tom Shoesy kind of people around him in his world actually don't understand real change and that he's always trying to remind them you gotta work with systems, you gotta work with systems. Um, but he was totally blind to the way in which the plutocrats around him have, have captured him. I said, you know, you guys have made about $250 million since leaving office, according to the Wall Street Journal. Like, do you understand in an age of populism why that rubs some people the wrong way? No, no. I pay 47% taxes. I donate some money to my friends in Arkansas with medical problems. You know, you, by the way, if you give it directly to the hospital, you don't pay the gift tax. And, and, and uh, I'm, I'm like Robin Hood, except I don't even hold an arrow on them. That's what he said. And, and then we got finally into this argument about that just to me captures the, the insipidity of this idea of changing the world. We, I tried to craft an example of something that makes as clear a case for the government solving a problem as any. So the example I came up with was something he'd worked on, which is childhood obesity. These soft drink companies lobby to get the vending machines in public schools. These are government schools. These are children who can't vote can't easily organize, have no power, countervailing power, very, very well-connected companies, you know, seems like a good case for like using the power of law and government to like protect those kids who are dying because of this product that has no redeeming value. And he says to me, well, the way I chose to work with them was to do it collaboratively and you know, we shrunk the cans a little bit and it's not, because you gotta, the thing is if you wanna make this kind of change, you gotta innovate because they still have to have a business model on the other side. And again, my breath was gone and maybe I need to get in better shape. Um, <laughs> but I just sat there thinking, a man who literally ran the most powerful and sophisticated machinery of state in human history is sitting here telling me, we can't anymore protect children from things, products that are killing them in government schools that we all own in common because we have to be solicitous of the business model of Pepsi and Coke. Mm -hmm. And I just think if we don't go back, like that is not change, that is fake change. And I don't care if it's Bill Clinton or anybody else, that's not real change. And we need to actually go back to remembering how we made change in this country because it wasn't that way. There you go. So buy the book. Buy the Give Anna a, a round of applause. Thank you Thank all. You. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thanks for being here. God bless you and good night. That was Anand Ardas talking with Joanne Reed about his new book, Winners Take All. If you live in New York and you have a New York Public Library card, then you can get Winners Take All from one of our local branches, or you can read it on our app, Simply E, where you can also read Anand's other books. And by the way, it's library card sign-up month, so if you live in New York and don't have a library card, frankly, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but change it now and go to nypl.org library card to sign up. 
Library Talks is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support from Riker Schnorr and myself.